Um, like Pastor John said, my name's Austin Pettit. I'm usually hiding behind a guitar, but today they put me out front, which is pretty cool. Um, I get the privilege today to end our series in the story of Jonah. And uh, if you've been here for the past few weeks, you've learned quite a bit about this little story. It's a small book in the middle of the Old Testament, and it seems to be kind of out of place because God is telling us a story that's a bit unusual. Uh, if any of you have, have missed any of the messages to this point in the, in the series, I'd encourage you to go to uh, the website pursuegod.org slash Jonah. All four messages will be up there with questions and discussion points, things you can learn about. I would encourage you to go check it out because we've learned a ton from this itty-bitty book. And today we're going to kind of wrap up this story and see how the book of Jonah plays into God's greater redemptive story for humanity. It's actually a really cool story. So today we're going to look at um, kind of the details of some of the miracles that happened. Before we get into that, I'm going to give you a 10,000-foot level view of how this story went down. Okay? So in, in the beginning of the book of Jonah, we see that Jonah is a prophet to Israel in the Old Testament. That just means he was around before Jesus was here. And God came to him and said, hey, I want you to go talk to Nineveh and tell them I'm going to destroy their city if they don't clean up their act. Well, Nineveh was enemies of Israel, so Jonah didn't want to go. So Jonah took off, and he ran away the opposite direction. He got on a boat and sailed west. Now, Nineveh's in the middle of the desert, so getting on a boat is like the opposite of what God told you to do. So he's sailing on this boat, but God isn't done with Jonah yet. So God sends a storm to get his attention, and it worked. Because in this storm, the sailors are freaking out. They're panicking about they're going to die. Right, they've seen storms before, but this was nuts. And they go ask Jonah, hey, do you know what's going on? And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm kind of running away from the God of the Hebrews. And they're like, wait a minute, you're running away from that God? Oh my goodness, what do we do? How do we fix this? And Jonah says, hey, just, just throw me overboard. It's the only way you guys will be saved. So toss me overboard, the storm will stop, and it'll all be good. So they do. Uh, their logic says, okay, the prophet of God says throw me overboard. So we do that. They toss Jonah overboard. And the storm does stop, miraculously. And the sailors are awestruck. Scripture tells us that they left that place worshiping and sacrificing to God because they realize the God of the Hebrews, Jonah's God, controls the weather. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit here. Meanwhile, Jonah is sinking. He's falling into the, in greater into the ocean, and his thought is, you know what, if I die, at least I haven't got to go to Nineveh, so I win. Yay me. God is bigger than our smugness. God's bigger than our temper tantrums. So he sends a fish to swallow Jonah and to take Jonah back to the shore where God tells him again, hey, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, all right, this time I get it, I'll go. And Jonah goes and preaches and the people of Nineveh respond. And they turn to God. And this huge revival breaks out and these people who didn't know God before are now following him. And what should be exciting, in chapter 4 of this book, we find Jonah pouting, right? He's mad at God. Last week we talked about this quite a bit, but Jonah's telling God, I knew you were patient and merciful and kind. This is why I didn't want to come. And God's like, well, yeah, that's, that's why I sent you. These people didn't know me. Why shouldn't I care about these people? 120,000 of them. And then the book ends. It, it literally just stops. We don't know if Jonah learned his lesson. We don't really know what happened in Nineveh right after that. We just know it stopped with a question from God. 
That's kind of the way this, this whole book is framed up because we learn in this, in this series, this book is not about Jonah. It's not about a fish. It's not about the Ninevites. You see, the story of Jonah is actually about a God of miracles who's willing to let everyone off the hook for their sins. Now, we, we talked several times in this series, this, this phraseology, letting people off the hook for their sins. What we mean is God has designed a rescue plan for humanity. You see, we, we couldn't get off the hook by ourselves. We were snagged. We were stuck. But God made a plan for us to come through and pull us off the hook and spend eternity with him. We're going to talk more about that today, but this whole book in Jonah is pointing to Jesus and when he came to save us. So the way we're going to get there today, how we get out of the book of Jonah into the story of Jesus, is we're going to talk about some miracles that happened in this story. Now, the four miracles of Jonah are the big ones. There are actually quite a few more that happen in the story. But we're going to focus on these four to see how it bridges over. But in the room, I know there are folks that hear the word miracle, and it, you, you get your fists up. You get, you know what, miracles are a testy thing in our culture. Let's look at a definition before we get into this too far. And that is the miracle is a surprising and welcome event that's not explicable by natural or scientific laws, and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Lots of words that says something happens, we can't explain it, God must have done it. That's what miracles are. Miracles, magic, myth, fables, these are all kind of terms we use to explain things that don't make sense to our natural minds. Now, I'm a scientist, okay, I, I, chemistry and microbiology, biochemistry, I am a nerd, and Miracles are one of those things that scientists particularly don't do well with because we explain things. We're really good at figuring out how things work. And when we can't explain something, it's, it's kind of a knock on our, on our intellect. We think, well, we should be able to figure that out. But there are things that happen in this world that we simply cannot explain. And I can prove it to you because 300 years ago, what we consider to be everyday mundane science was the stuff of magic and myths. Right? The lights are on in here, aren't they? That is because of electricity. Now, 300 years ago, lightning was controlled by the gods, and it was coming down as a judgment thing. It was something that would happen to somebody who did something bad. We can now harness it and flip on a switch and turn on our, our screens and our tablets and our lights, and we are in charge of how that process works. So that was miraculous, but it's now normal. A newer one, genetic power, Okay. We can understand where in your DNA the code for blue eyes comes from, or where the code for Down syndrome comes from, or where the code for being tall or being short comes from. We can, we can interpret genetic material and make a reasonable pass at what that's going to mean. Seventy years ago, we had no idea how that worked. Right? Watson and Crick showed up, discovered DNA, but before that, it was just something that happened, and it was a miracle. But just because we can explain it doesn't make it any less miraculous. It just means we understand how God did it. You see, that's what science really is. It's not the antithesis of religion. Science is us understanding how God did something. It's reverse engineering. And God gave us these brains to figure those things out. So when we talk about miracles today in this story, it's okay to have questions. God can't wait for your questions. He can't wait to explain something to you and show you how it worked. But don't let your question stop you from the purpose that God is trying to teach us today about why these miracles happened. Okay, so with that in mind, 
Let's carry on and look at the first of our four miracles that happens in this story. It happens in verse 1 of Jonah, chapter 1. It's that God spoke to Jonah. Now, for those of us who've been in church for a while, this may not seem miraculous. I'm, not, I'm on it. I'm on it. I've been in church for a long time, and God's speaking, God's word, those are things we hear a lot. Every week we hear, we talk about it, we sing songs about it. It almost becomes kind of numb or mundane to us, like, yeah, it's God speaking. But when you step back and look at the actual facts, it's incredible that God would take the time to talk to us. Okay, so God made everything. He made all y'all and me. He made everything. He holds it in, in his balance. The world, scripture says that he holds the worlds in his hands. He knows the numbers of ha- hairs on your head. God knows everything and he controls everything and he speaks to us, his created people. That doesn't make sense. Why would the God of the created universe step down at our time and speak with us? Well, interesting, in the story of Jonah, in the first verse it says, God spoke to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh. We know that God knows everything, right? Scripture tells us that God knows the future, he knows the past, he knows everything, which means he knew that Jonah was going to run away, right? He knew he'd have to send a storm and a fish and a plant and a worm to get his attention. He probably could have chosen hundreds of other folks that would have willingly gone to Nineveh and done what he said the first time with no argument, but he didn't because he cared about Jonah. He had a message for Jonah. And in Jonah's story, he had a message for all of us today. That's incredible. That is miraculous. God is doing something that we don't understand in only a way he can do it. That is the definition of a miracle. When we we look at um, how this is going in, in this story, we see that God is telling Jonah to go somewhere, and it's gonna happen. Right? The story of Jonah, we see several ways God gets Jonah on board, gets him going. And that's what we learn in God's word, is that his word will always accomplish what he intended to set it out for. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, we read, it's the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Right? There's no maybes or if, ands, or buts with God God says it, it happens. God says it won't happen, it doesn't happen. There's no third option. And in Jonah's case, we see God's plan was to save Nineveh. And that was going to happen, whether Jonah wanted to or not. It was going to happen. Okay? The interesting thing is, is God's word always accomplishes what it's going to set out to do because it's the same God who spoke creation into existence is speaking these messages to Jonah. So way back at the very, very, very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation account. And God is speaking light into existence. Scripture says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be plants and animals, and there were plants and animals. There was no debate, there was no discussion, there was no process, it just happened. Because God's word is powerful, and it's creative, and it changes everything it touches. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So we know that God's word changes things. Now, in Jonah's story, God spoke audibly 
to Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh. Jonah and God talked a lot. He was a prophet. So when God spoke to Jonah, it wasn't weird. But let's be honest, friends. If God spoke to us audibly today, most of us would be a little uncomfortable because it'd be super weird, right? There are times in my life that God has spoken to me audibly. I can hear a voice in my head that says, go do this, don't do that, right? I've heard that voice, but it's weird, and I have to question it. And I think to myself, is that you, God, or is that my crazy brain making things up? Most of the time, it's my crazy brain making things up, let's be honest. But there are times. God knows that speaking to us audibly isn't always the best way to get our attention. So he chose another venue to get us to listen to him, to hear his word, and that is in his Bible. Okay? This is 66 books written by dozens of authors over hundreds of years, all telling the same story. God used people to write down his owner's manual, his love letter to us. And he can't wait to show you what's in here. When you crack open this, this Bible, you read the very words of God to us today. We read about his, his goodness. We read about his greatness, his power, his inexplainable love for each of us. We see our need for a Savior. We see our need for forgiveness. And we see God's plan to forgive us and to save us. And here we find wisdom, we find value, we find identity. In a world right now that is struggling to find identity and to find value, and they're chasing after silly things, God is standing back there saying, look, I got the answer, it's right here. I know who you are. I made you. Come ask me who you are. I can't wait to tell you. It's in here, guys. And it may sound hokey and weird, but it really is in here. When you open God's word, things change. And we saw that in the story of Jonah when God spoke. Now, God spoke the first time and Jonah didn't listen, so there was a need for the second of our miracles to happen, and that is that God controlled the storm. What I mean by controlled is he sent the storm and he stopped the storm. So in chapter 1, verse 4, we see God hurled a powerful wind on the sailors. They panicked threw Jonah overboard, and the storm stopped. That, that doesn't happen, gang. So we don't, we don't control the weather, right? We know, can anybody in here program storms? All right, so conspiracy theories aside, no one can control the weather, right? Cloud seeding and government, all that kind of stuff, is that, that's all crazy talk. But I can't send a storm somewhere, nor can I stop a storm. I can't tell the ocean to calm down. I can't tell the ocean to perk up. Only God can do that, because God is the one who created the ocean in the first place. We can go back to a, a different story in the Old Testament, um, and that is in the book of Job, and we see God explaining more of who he is. Now, brief context, the book of Job is actually considered to be one of, if not the oldest books in the Bible. It's in the middle of the Bible because it makes more sense there, but it's actually super-duper old, okay? What happens is Job is going through some stuff. And that's a nice way of saying Job is at the end of his rope. And he's asking God, God, why aren't you here? Why aren't you helping me? Where are you? Why are you doing this to me? I thought you loved me, God. Why aren't you in control? This is out of crazy control. And God answers him. And he answers him three times. And I would encourage you, go read the book of Job, because it is a put-yourself-in-your-place kind of book. Because God says to Job, I got this. Let me prove it to you. 
In Job chapter 38, verses 8 through 11, God is talking to Job and says this, Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb, and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind the barrel gates, limiting its shores, and I said, This far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Brief aside, can you imagine being Job when God's talking to you like that? No. No, no, thank you. I, I get it. I get it, God. I'm sorry, right? This is, just, this is just one of three times God does this to him, so it, it gets worse. But this is a summary showing us that God created the waves. He told the ocean where to stop. You, you ask, well, how, how did land masses get formed? Well, God made that. The mechanism by which that happened is amazing. It's miraculous, but it was all because God's design. And we see in Scripture that God is in charge of the wind and the waves. And it's this context and the story of Jonah that actually kind of takes us into a story in Matthew, where Jesus and his disciples are facing a storm. And the story is going to sound really familiar to our story in Jonah, because the disciples, they just, they just finished the day of, of following Jesus around while he did his work. They're tired, they get on a boat, and they are sailing across the sea to their next stop. And Jesus falls asleep, he's tired. And then a storm shows up. And remember, the disciples are fishermen, so they know how it's like to be on a boat, and they're panicking because they know this is a bad storm. And they're, they're worried they're going to die, and they go to Jesus, and they wake Jesus up, kind of like the sailors woke Jonah up. And they wake Jesus up, and they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die. Why, what, what are you doing? And Jesus responds with some of the most calming words in Scripture. He says, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, and he rebuked the winds in the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? My, my kids have a, a, a kid's Bible. It's got some more creative language put into it. And they tell this story, and Jesus, uh, they wake Jesus up, and he stands up, and he looks at the winds and the waves, and he says, hush. And they do, and the winds just stop. And that imagery is beautiful because that's the kind of power Jesus had over the wind and the waves. And the disciples realized, okay, we've read Job, we've read Jonah, only God's in charge of the wind and the waves. This guy just told the wind to stop, and it did. Logically, then this guy must be God, because only God can do that. And they were amazed. See, they had seen Jesus casting out demons and healing people all day, but it was this this point in their day that turned their minds around. Because when you see God do a miracle, you can't stay the same. And that leads us kind of into our third miracle of the day, and that is that God provided the fish. Now, this is where it gets to be fun, because my first question for God in heaven is going to be, why a fish? Like, why, why did you send a fish to swallow the guy? Why didn't you send, like, two dolphins to ride like jet skis over to the coast, or some of those like giant eagles from Lord of the Rings, fly those guys in and fly in there. That, that seems way easier and way less work, God. I really don't know why it was a fish. I don't know why it had to be that way, but I do know that being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights is important because there's another story of another guy who's inside the belly of the earth for three days and three nights that kind of foreshadows here. 
in verse 17 of chapter 1, um, we, we read that the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And uh, this may seem a bit outlandish. Like I said, why a fish? But actually in Scripture, God uses animals a lot to further His plan. Because sometimes we have the ability to say no, right? We, we don't listen to God. There are times in my life that I'm like, ah, I don't want to do that. And, and, and I don't really pursue God that carefully. Now, God hasn't sent a talking donkey into my life like he did for Balaam, or he hasn't sent crows to feed me like he did for Elijah. He hasn't caught a, thorn, a ram in some thorns behind me so I can make my sacrifice. That kind of stuff hasn't happened to me yet, and I hope I don't have to get to that point where God uses his creation to get my attention. But it happens a lot in Scripture. All those references I just made were real stories that happened. Go check them out. They're crazy. God does miraculous things to get our attention because we won't listen sometimes otherwise. And if you think to yourself, okay, the God who created everything is still in charge of everything, that makes sense, but, but how, why, and what does that mean? What is God doing with these miracles in this time? We actually see Job was asking similar questions to God, and he said, why aren't you here? Why aren't you in charge? Why are you losing control? And in the middle of another one of God's responses to Job, we read this in chapter 39. God says, is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle rises to the heights to make its nest? I don't, I don't know that God is sarcastic, but you can kind of hear that in this, right? That, that's how I read this. That's how my sarcastic brain reads this. God's like, look, Job, I got this. Right? I have told the eagles where to go. I have designed creation to be exactly the way it is. I am still in charge. I have not lost this thing. So stop questioning my authority and come chase after, follow me. And that leads us to our fourth miracle of the day, which is by far and away the most challenging miracle, and that is the fish couldn't contain Jonah. Now, I told you guys before, I'm a scientist. I ask questions. And the story of Jonah being swallowed by a fish and surviving for three days, pardon the pun, is tough to swallow. Okay? I can't explain that. There have been stories and studies and people trying to say, well, this guy survived for a few days inside a whale. That guy survived inside a fish. Some guy named Pinocchio made it just fine. It must be a real thing, right? right? That, that's, but I really can't explain it, gang. I don't know how Jonah fell into the water, was swallowed by a fish, three days later showed up on land alive, and walked to Nineveh. I know those are facts, though, because Jesus talks about this story as if it were a factual event. The in-between part, though, is difficult to, to, to grasp, and I, I want to encourage you today, don't accept that it just happened and you're okay with it. You don't have to just dismiss your concerns and your doubts. I encourage you to go explore, learn, ask questions, dig, find out, try to uncover what you think might have happened here. You may not be able to explain it fully, but God's not afraid of your questions. There are, I will tell you, there are two competing theories for what happened to Jonah in the fish, uh, neither of which is more accurate or more true than the other. Scripture supports both these opinions. The first is that Jonah was alive. The fish swallowed him. God sustained him inside the fish. Uh, Pastor John made a joke in first service about the smell being so terrible he wished he was dead. That's probably true. But he may have been alive, and then the fish spit him out. God's in charge of creation. 
Why can't the God who raises people from the dead keep them alive? The second idea is that Jonah actually did die in the fish. The fish swallowed him, and he died, and then the fish spit him back up, and God raised him back to life. I don't know which one is true. I mean, if we're being completely honest, I'm more comfortable with the second one because God raised people from the dead quite a bit in Scripture. That's, that's kind of a normal thing for God to do. It's not, not absurd. And it makes sense. Actually, when Jonah's praying inside the fish, he's, he says he's in Sheol, which is the, the realm of the dead. So he thinks he's dead. Whether he's dead or not, we're not going to know. It's kind of a Schrodinger's cat thing, for those of you who know that, that analogy. We won't know if Jonah was alive or dead unless we open the fish and find out. And, and he's, that's already happened, so we can't. But it doesn't change what happened. You see, understand how here is secondary to what? It's actually tertiary to what and why. Because the facts are that God used this fish to hide Jonah away for three days and three nights. And then he forced this fish to spit him out. So don't lose track of what God is doing because you can't understand how it happened. Don't fall into that arrogant thinking that you have to explain everything. It doesn't make sense sometimes. And that's okay because God is still in charge. He's still in command. There were some other folks in the Bible who got stuck trying to figure out some secondary issues like this. Um, in Jesus' time, there were these dudes called Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of their time, and they had a pretty sweet gig. They were in charge. They knew what they were doing. They were, they were in control. They had figured things out. They were good to go. And then Jesus shows up and tells them all, yeah, no, you're doing it all wrong. And, and that, that didn't, they didn't like that. They said, well, no, we're, we are God's people. I mean, if you say, Jesus, that you're God, then we should be your people, and you should do what we say. And you, you chuckle because you, see, you hear how, how, how silly that is, but in Matthew chapter 12, this actually happens. The Pharisees show up one day, and they, said, uh, they come to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miracle to, to sign to prove your authority. Jesus has already been doing miracles. People are healed. People are, are, are no longer broken. People are forgiven. There are demons cast out. Jesus can throw a rock and hit somebody. He's healed. It's craziness. But the teachers of the law ask him for another sign. Why? I think it's because they wanted control. Because if they could tell Jesus what to do and he did it, ah, we are your people and we can still tell you what to do, God. But Jesus saw right through that, and it continues on. Jesus said, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Imagine their confusion, right? We asked for a sign, and you gave us a history lesson. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. What are you talking about? But he's telling them, I'm going to give you this sign because he's telling them what's going to happen to him. He is going to die and be in the earth for three days and come back. And he's actually warning them, guys, when this happens, remember the story of Jonah because when you respond, it's going to be important for what you see. He says, he continues on the next verse in 41. He says, the people, will stand, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. 
He's like, look, these Gentile pagan people who were enemies of Israel and didn't know who God was, when somebody showed up to tell them who God was, they followed. They repented and followed. But now, God Himself in Jesus is here, and you still won't listen to me. You should be embarrassed, people of God. Not you, you're not, not you, sorry. This is yelling at the Pharisees. You Pharisees should be embarrassed of yourselves. You're people of God, and you're missing the message. Now, of course, I made that, that silly joke, how you're not people of God, but there, there is an invitation here. Because Jonah showed up, and the people of Nineveh repented, because they didn't know God before that. They didn't have any context. When Jonah showed up and said, hey, your city is going to be destroyed, but... God wants to rescue you. They're like, well, I, I guess we'll take that plan. I mean, my goodness, if we're going to be destroyed or follow God, let's follow God. And they repent and follow God. And I keep saying this, this repent word, uh, it's a super churchy word that we throw around. It's usually like a southern preacher who's like, repent and be saved. You know, that's what we think of. That's true. It's just unfortunate that we have that comical attachment to it. Repentance is something that God gives us. And it's the process by which we identify, I'm pursuing something that God doesn't want me to be doing. I'm pursuing my own selfish desires. I don't want to do that anymore. So I, I turn away from the thing that I'm pursuing, and I turn and pursue God instead. And this is an over and over and over again thing. Something that defines a Christian life is this continual act of repentance. When God shows me I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, I need to drop that and follow God's plan instead. And the invitation for us to repent is a miraculous gift of God. You see, the, the miracle we didn't talk about today is the miracle that Nineveh repented. They were going to be destroyed. They deserved to be destroyed. And actually, like 150 years later, they actually were destroyed because they turned away from God. But at this time, they turned to God. We have the same miracle afforded to us today. Friends, the, the, the God of the universe created you. He made you to be a certain way. He made me to be a certain way. He, he created us to be with him now and forever. But because we have a choice, we all choose to do our own thing. And when we choose to do our own thing, Scripture calls that sin. In Romans 3.23, we read that the wages of sin is death. If we want to pursue our own way, God will let us pursue our own way all the way off into eternity away from him. But he doesn't want that, friends. He wants you to be with him. So he sent Jesus to earth to live a perfectly righteous life, fulfill the entire law for us, and then die in our place. But because Jesus is bigger than death, death couldn't contain him, three days and three nights later, he walked out of the grave. And he's alive today in heaven with the Father, giving us His righteousness for those of us who choose to follow Him. That's craziness, guys. We, we, we deserve death. God doesn't need to save us. But He did because He wants to. As we wrap up today and kind of finish out this whole series, I want you guys to consider this, this thought. God used Jonah to invite the people of Nineveh to follow Him. God sent Jesus to earth to invite all of us to follow him today. The choice is the same we have. 
Now, we, have, we can choose to be like the Pharisees and decide that we got it. We, we can save ourselves. We're fine. We don't need you, Jesus. Or we can choose to be like the people of Nineveh who realized they needed help and they needed to follow the God who was here to save them. Now, if God is kind of tugging at your heart and you're feeling that today, I would encourage you, don't walk away with questions. Come talk to me. Come find John. Come find anybody on staff. Actually, anybody in this room, really. We would love to talk to you about who Jesus is and the gift he has for you today. Don't leave with questions. God loves you too much to leave you hanging. He can't wait to let you off the hook for your sins. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your gift of salvation, your gift of repentance. Thank you for the story of Jonah that foreshadowed and showed us how Jesus would come and how we need your help, God. I pray that anybody here today who doesn't know you would be emboldened to ask questions and pursue you, God. And use us as your vessel to bring revival to this valley. And we can't wait to see what you're going to do. We can't wait to see you move. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray these things. Amen.